Welcome to Oncology Data Advisor. Today I'm here at ONS Congress and I'm joined by Colette Baudouin. Thanks so much for coming on today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Would you like to introduce yourself and share what your work focuses on? Sure. So my name is um, Claude Baudouin. I am actually um, full-time faculty at LSU um, Health Sciences Center in New Orleans School of Nursing. And I am also um, a PhD student, which is actually um, the reason that I had that poster presented that you were looking at. Yes. Awesome. Um, so your poster was on uh, the lived experience of body image in women undergoing active treatment of head and neck cancer. How does cancer treatment impact women's body image, particularly for head and neck cancer? So it was actually really interesting because what I was looking at is making sure that, um, first of all, looking at women with head and neck cancer is very specific because it's not really a cancer that women get a lot, right? It's mostly a male-driven male cancer. And as we, as women would know, like body image for women is a lot different than it is for body image in men. And I felt like when I looked at the literature that there was a lot that was missing as far as trying to address the needs of women in particular. So I wanted to make sure that I was able to actually listen to them and see what they wanted to do. So um, a major professor, we talked about it and felt like this was a good way to go. And we would start with doing just a qualitative study, talking to the women that had experienced head and neck cancer and looking at not just body image as a physical thing, but also as more than that, because it is more than that. And as a woman yourself, you know, it's more than just how you look. It's how you feel about how you look and how it impacts what you do every day. So it's a psychological and social impacts that actually feed into how you feel particularly. Definitely. So what were some of the, the questions and themes that you looked into? So some of the questions were basically um, looking at how um, it impacted them, like what did they have to change as far as... Um, what they were doing and how they experienced their life. It had to ask them about, first of all, how they were diagnosed. Like, what, how, how did you find out? What made you have to go to the doctor to see what was going on? Um, how has it changed your, um, your daily routine? Like, what has happened as far as that? What has happened as far as, like, your family? Who, who has been their big support system? Who has been the one that you can call on when you need to? And I think that was kind of important because we were trying to address, again, like, everything that happened. And then also, like, um, were there particular times, like, when maybe you felt like um, that you weren't... Um, being heard, that you know, that you felt like you had things that weren't weren't being addressed per se. Um, so, what were some of the themes that you uncovered by asking these questions? So, what I did is I actually broke it down, um, and again with like the support of my my faculty advisors and such. And what we found is three overpowering themes, and um, you could see them outlined on my poster at Congress. And it was being and becoming, like seeing myself as a changed person, like what physical, what things happen that made you see yourself potentially differently and giving the women a chance to express that. And some of the themes like um, I had put up had to do with physical changes, whereas some of them had to do with like role, social or body image changes that they had experienced. And it was really kind of interesting and more than I actually thought about. I, I think as a woman myself, I began to realize just how much other things impacted my body image um, and I don't have the debilitating you know potentially um, you know life-altering um, diagnosis so that for me was a huge thing the other thing is um, that we broke down was um, 
inward um, inward feelings and meanings, which had a lot to do with the stigma that attached. Um, some of the women, not all of the women, but some of the women that I interviewed had actually had um, an HPV diagnosis. And kind of the feelings that went along with that, as well as some of them um, had been smokers or had used alcohol and stuff. So a lot of like the, the feeling of guilt, the feeling of being stigmatized and how that, again, impacted how they felt. You know, if somebody asked, you know, what kind of cancer you had, they almost at times said they felt like, you know, they didn't want to tell them because of everything, you know, because of the generalizations that go along with what happens with that. And then the final one, um, which is really of particular interest to me is um, as a healthcare provider and as a researcher, um, was navigating the journey. And that's where um, I feel like um, I wanted to make sure I was able to tap into the things that they found that were helpful for them and that made a difference for them so that we as healthcare providers can actually learn from that and try to provide resources, interventions, teaching strategies, support groups that actually are tailored more to what they need and not what we think they need. Right, right. Are there any um, resources that nurses can look to to help kind of promote body image for their patients? So. That's a big problem, right? And that's part of the big thing because um, we all look to the physical changes and there are multiple resources available for like physical changes, you know, for um, wigs if they actually lose their hair. But, you know, the, the, the ironic part of that is many of the women that had it, the chemo doesn't necessarily make them lose their hair. It might thin a little bit, but they said, oh, you know, what they didn't tell us is that you lose that four inch band around the back of your neck where the radiation burns it. So I can't wear my hair up anymore. I can't do things like that. So I think... Um, you know, some of the physical things are different. And I know um, as comprehensive cancer centers with, you know, COC accreditation, many people do have psychologic counselors and stuff like that. But what they don't have in particular is other women that have gone through this. And I think that's the biggest thing. And most, um, actually, every woman I talked to um, during the interview had actually at some point in their diagnosis reached out to online support groups um, where they were actually able to connect not with the support group as a whole, but they found women that were in the same trajectory and at about the same pace of the course of treatment and were actually able to connect with them. And they actually considered them friends and as well as like, you know, co-cancer survivors, what was going on at the same time. And we're actually able to gain a lot of that. So I think that um, as healthcare providers, we want to think that we can help do anything. And the other important thing with that is only one of those women actually had reported that their um, healthcare provider had suggested it, really? which to me is, is, is sort of like reaching a knowledge gap, you know, and a practice gap mm -hmm. for us in that the recognition that you know, you may only get a couple of women with head and neck cancer a year, and we don't know, you know, what they go through every day. And, and it doesn't just end when they finish treatment. That's the whole thing. So my, my recruitment data and my um, inclusion criteria ended with um, three months after um, treatment ended, and that's when theirs was going to end. But, um, but it doesn't end there for them. And actually, at that point, many of them were still really sick, um, trying to go through things or just getting back to their feet. I actually um, was able to get IRB approval to reach out to the online support groups to try and do some recruitment because, of course, that was a problem for me right. since it is a small population. And it was um, kind of um, eye-opening and ironic that a lot of the women that had been out of treatment for several years are like, you don't understand. Like, you need to do a research. You need to include us in this research study right. because it's still going on. And I'm like, okay, hold that for a yeah. thought. Hold that thought for a minute, and um, I'll be back with you after yeah. I finish this dissertation, and then we can hit that. So I kind of think it's just, it, it was almost like it gave them um, a platform 
for it's like, hey, like, you know, we want to be recognized. We're not like the men that get this diagnosis. We're not the same. We um, are resourceful. We reach out to try and find these answers and we want to be proactive in our care. Absolutely. This is really such important research. Thank you so much for explaining all of it. Yes. Thank you so much for inviting me to. I feel like it's, I feel like, you know, we always want to do better for our patients. And I think that's one of the important things that we really try to do um, as healthcare providers. If we didn't, we wouldn't be in this field. And I think just recognizing the fact that, um, there are special needs for special populations, and even if it's a small population, no, we might not have that exact resource available that they need, but we have to learn to be resourceful ourselves, just like these women are resourceful, and recognize the fact that um, we need to, to kind of think outside of our box, too, and recognize that they are going to need the same support that other people need, but maybe more, or maybe a little bit different. Right, absolutely. Well, this is great. Thank you so much for, for sharing all of this. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great.